From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Department of Housing and Urban Development operations haven't suffered because of coronavirus telework, according to the HUD Inspector General's office. The IG there audited the work of 37 employees. Federal News Network reports the IG did find network and connection issues and paperwork problems, but both only made a, quote, slight impact on work. The Defense Department's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center has a new temporary leader. Jake Chief Technology Officer Nand Malchandani will be the interim director after the retirement of Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan June 1st. C4ISRNet reports Malchandani will lead the Jake until the Senate confirms a three-star flag or general officer as the next director. Two White House nominations are on hold tonight because of President Trump's firing of inspectors general across government. President Pro Tem of the Senate, Chuck Grassley, says he won't lift his hold on White House nominations for National Counterterrorism Center Director or Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security until the White House explains why President Trump fired the IGs. GovExec reports Grassley says a letter the White House sent May 26th isn't enough. The Department of Health and Human Services has a streamlined tool to create a better business network for grants management. The Grant Recipient Digital Dossier uses artificial intelligence to interpret data so users can see grant recipient information from across the government. Michael Peckham is the Reimagine HHS Grants Initiative Lead at the Department of Health and Human Services. Mike, thanks for coming on the program. It's great to see you again. What is the story behind this? Tell me what you're doing not just with the grants dossier, but with Reimagine HHS across the board. Well, hey, it is great to be on your show again, Francis. And uh, we are working on reinventing grants management. This is all in response to M1722, and I applaud the approach by my senior leadership within HHS because they've given me a lot of latitude and flexibility to really look at what the issues are and where the concerns reside. and. By doing so, we've been able to build some pretty impressive tools here. And that's what I uh, wanted to talk to you today about, the grant recipient digital dossier, and how that came to be, and what that tool will do for the public. What was the problem that you started out with, Mike? What was the problem that you and your colleagues decided we need to address, and how did you determine what technology to use to address it? So uh, it was very interesting. Uh, the problem that I think that we've been facing for a long time is the problem around what does a system need versus what does a user need? And I say that from the perspective of when we first started working on the Data Act a long time ago and engaging recipients, we understood very quickly, we're not building systems for what a user needs, but we're building a system for what the data fields are. I like to uh, preface things by the question or the challenge that I put out to my team when we first started this was, when you go to the doctor for the very first time, what are the five words you do not want to hear? Are you a new patient? As soon as you hear those terms, those words, you know you're going to show up at least 15 minutes early, you're going to be filling out forms, and the next thing you know, you're going to go to a radiologist or a specialist or you name it, and you're going to fill out all those same forms again. None of us are happy about that as users, yet we do that to our grants community over and over again. 
And so that was the challenge. That was the bar that I put up for everybody. And I said, we need to address this because we're asking for all this information from our recipients, but then we have to manage it. And that becomes a little bit cumbersome, not only for the recipients, but for us. So recognizing that there are technology breakthroughs, there's all sorts of emerging technology that we can apply to these situations. Let's take advantage of that, but let's not apply technology for the sake of technology. Let's engage users, understand what the concerns are, what the issues are, and then look at the technology points to figure out what's the best way to address their need. And you have a, a particular challenge here because your users are not just internal customers and they're users at other agencies and they're users in private sector organizations, nonprofits and so on, that are seeking information about the grants they've received and maybe information about grants that, that they wanted to receive and didn't receive and trying to learn from that. Am I on the right track, Mike? Yes, I would say you were absolutely on the right track. Uh, we have to a very different approach uh, from the perspective that you just described. It's not just internal to HHS. We're dealing with an entire community. And when you're talking about grants, grants are issued because um, there's a bandwidth issue or there's a subject matter expertise issue that we're seeking the help or the assistance from the community to address. So the grants are for the betterment of the public, but let's make sure that we're getting the best out of our investment. Hence, you get into all the compliance factors around those grants. So if we're gonna make an approach or take an approach to this issue or this concern, we need to make sure that we are engaging all users. And that was very prevalently uh, stated under the Data Act. We're not always engaging recipients in the conversation. So we have done our best to reach out continuously throughout the project to make sure that we understand what the recipients need. The first and foremost thing we understood was Every time we build something from a government perspective, we're building it from the idea that what is it that we need to track and award? When you talk to the recipients, the recipients very quickly say, hey, why don't you look at us as a recipient? And then you can see the totality of the work that we're doing, and it will be a lot easier for you to pull the information together and get a holistic uh, picture of a recipient. So we started with that and we said, okay, great. Uh, really, really uh, good start uh, or good information, good feedback. Um, then we started looking at where are the areas where we are spending the most amount of time, money, and effort. And so the risk assessment came up very quickly because 2 CFR 200 is a guidance that says that for every award or uh, competing continuation, you must do a risk assessment on the potential awardee. Um, I don't know that we're doing that across the board uh, all the time, but what I can say is we're not doing it consistently across the board. And it is a, a time-consuming process. On average, I have heard that a risk assessment for one recipient can take up to eight hours. We risk adjusted and said, okay, let's say we take four hours per risk uh, assessment. If I have four organizations looking at one independent recipient, that is 16 hours of time that is invested in a risk assessment that is not comparable, it's not standardized, it's not objective. What should somebody learn from the effort that you've undertaken as they're headed down the same path as you, Mike? Okay, sorry, I was so talkative, but I think that the thing to learn is engage your users, understand what a user needs, and don't build towards what a system can provide because you have the disruptive technology today, the emerging technology today, to build systems that are going to meet user needs as opposed to just building a system to collect information. 
Mike Peckham of the Department of Health and Human Services, great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Congratulations on your work. Thank you. Up next, oversight on multiple award contracts. Straight ahead on Government Matters, why more auditors may be coming your way. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Government agencies spend $120 billion more on acquisitions now than they did in 2015. A lot of that spending is on multiple award contracts, over $35 billion worth last year. Larry Allen is the president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Larry, welcome. Thanks for coming on. In your newsletter this week, you write where the money goes, the whistleblowers and auditors will follow. What's the significance of that, given the increase in the use of multiple award contracts? Francis, the age-old adage is that with revenue comes responsibility. And in the multiple award contract area, we're seeing increased government revenue. $35 billion in IT, $38 billion in professional services. Uh, that's a lot of money. A lot of it's being spent uh, through the Department of Defense. Uh, it's bound to get some scrutiny from the oversight community, whether it's increased oversight from the inspector general community, uh, the defense contract audit agency, or both, uh, we most likely will see some increased audit activity that follows the trail of the dollars. One of the things that's important to remember, Francis, is that a lot of the audit activity that takes place in the MAC world is not driven solely by the IG community. It's driven by whistleblowers and whistleblowers are going to look at the increased amount of revenue and they're going to see an opportunity an opportunity to try to point out wrongdoings real or alleged by contractors and my point is that it's time for contractors to pay attention to this and to understand that they may be at increased oversight and audit risk because of the business that's going through these contracts all right you write about that subject it's important to remember who the whistleblowers are. Who are the whistleblowers in your view? And why is it important for companies to understand who those people are and, and what their perspective is? Now, whistleblowers are disgruntled former employees. Sometimes they're current employees, Francis. Uh, they're also uh, competitors. Uh, these are people, regardless of their status, that can make money off of whistleblowing activity if they uh, collect, the government collects a fee, a recovery uh, from any alleged wrongdoing, the whistleblower gets a portion of that. That's a powerful incentive for people to uh, go out and look for problems, look under rugs, look in a dusty corner maybe, 
uh, to find some problems. And in fact, we know there are professional whistleblowers in this arena uh, and a, uh, a corral full of plaintiff bar attorneys who are willing to take their cases. Not all whistleblowers are professional whistleblowers. How does a company discern whether a complaint that they are potentially up against is something that is legitimate that they need to be concerned about? Maybe they didn't know was happening and it's action they need to try to mitigate and whether they are up against something that is not, uh, that is more organized, more professional. Francis, that's a really great question. In fact, most False Claims Act cases, most whistleblower cases are filed under seal initially. So a company may not know that they are the target of an audit or investigation. They may just get an audit letter from, say, the GSA Office of the Inspector General that says, hey, we're going to come in and conduct a post-award audit on your records or another communication from another audit agency that is what I would say out of cycle. Uh, you know when you're going to get audited if you're a large government contractor. You know that there's a cycle to some of the uh, examinations. So if there's something that's coming to you that is out of cycle, uh, seemingly out of the blue, it's not out of the blue. It's likely that there will be a, a whistleblower case behind it. You won't know about it, but you should absolutely take it very seriously, Francis. That's an indication that your company really ought to start looking through its records, consider doing a parallel internal review to look for any potential problems so that you can begin to get a scope on the uh, amount of problems, if any, that are in play here. Uh, you don't want to just sit back and uh, conduct business as usual. What's the appropriate role and what's the appropriate time for an organization to do a self-audit? How do you stay ahead of this curve, Larry? Well, I think that's another good question, Francis. I think it's a best practice for any large company or any company that's federal business has grown over the last three to five years to do a self-audit of some type every five years you really ought to be doing an examination. You want to look for issues. You want to test your compliance systems to make sure they are acting accordingly. You are much better off as a company finding your own issues first and then reporting them to the government. In fact, there are mandatory disclosure rules around this type of thing. Uh, but uh, the more that you do yourself, the more uh, it will be in your favor when the government comes to knock on your door uh, and better to show the government that you have found problems and reported it to them than the government finds problems you didn't know you had. Larry Allen, thanks as always. Great to see you, my friend. Francis, thank you and have a great day in government contracting. Up next, Seeking Agile Solutions in Government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, adopting new solutions during the coronavirus response. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
The Department of Homeland Security is shifting to agile software development, but it still has some work to do to track all of the steps in the process. The Government Accountability Office recommends the agency incentivize teams to use agile systems and stay up to date on progress reports. Ed DeSev is head of the Agile Government Center from the National Academy of Public Administration and the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Ed, it's great to see you, my friend. Thanks for coming on. What challenges are you seeing agencies running into when it comes to implementing agile approaches to software development? Francis, I think the change in anything in government is extraordinarily difficult. People have been told for years and years that waterfall uh, is the method of software development and shifting to empowering small teams, shifting to working very closely with customers, shifting to working at great speed and delivering value uh, on a monthly or weekly basis is very difficult to ingrain in a federal agency. What we're seeing is the agencies realize the Treasury did a beautiful job implementing the Data Act. The agencies realize that the only way they can deliver on the kinds of things they need to do is by using agile techniques. And GAO recognizes that as well. They had a, a recent report uh, that was specific to agile and recommended that it be considered across the board. So the agencies that are starting to kind of feel their way through the agile processes are finding, we, I, if I had a nickel for some, every time somebody said, we're going to try to find a quick win in agile, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be up with you in the Poconos. What, are, are we beyond the stage now where quick wins are the coin of the realm? Are we at a stage where agencies should be moving whole hog to agile and trying to forget about the waterfall process? Or will there always be things where waterfall may be appropriate, Ed? I wish if I had a nickel for the my ability to predict something like that, Francis, I'd be with you in DC. Now, <laughs> um, what, we're, what we're trying to do is move Agile even beyond the scope of software development, move it into changing organizational behavior. What the US Digital Service, which has done a marvelous job in assisting people with development is trying to do, is they're trying to bring agile techniques to software development, but then extend it to organizational change. This is a big deal. And I don't think it's going to go away. What I've been doing for the last year at the National Academy of Public Administration NapaWash.org is trying to show how organizations themselves can be agile. There's a set of principles on the website. There are cases from uh, the World Bank, cases from the Australia Postal Service, the US Data Act that show people that this is a big deal and it's here to stay. So um, while some people may decide they wanna go back and develop software differently, we think it's more likely that they're gonna to decide to change their organizations to bring those organizations in line with Agile principles. So what do I do from a management perspective? Forget about software development. What do I do from a management perspective to implement these principles, Ed? Number one, you empower small teams to do things quickly and to provide results that customers care about. And in doing that, management has to itself 
provide leadership from the top. Leadership from the top is terribly important. It has to stress the need for speed. I'm reading a wonderful book, which you've probably read, um, on World War II. It's the history of the, it's the Splendid and the Vile, uh, the history of the first year of the war. When Churchill came in, the first thing he did was he adopted agile principles. He didn't call them that, but he set up new small ministries, for example, aviation production, and told them that they had to move at lightning speed instead of producing 10 or 15 or 20 aircraft a month. They had to produce two or 300 aircraft a month. There's nothing totally new and agile, but again, small teams, empowered teams, good communication, co-location where possible, um, are, are all the things that have to be done. Now, will the entire organization become agile? Probably not. The World Bank found that it could change many of its processes and improve both customer satisfaction and improve the time it took to get a loan approved significantly by using agile techniques. We could do the same thing in job training, for example. I don't want to make a big deal out of that, but it need, we're going to need a lot of reskilling in this economy after the epidemic has moved on and, and while we're dealing with the aftermath. Ed DeSev, thanks very much. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks. Francis, it's always good to be here. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.